Jonah. Today we're looking at Jonah chapter 3. It's a reading of God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God, called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. They issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let them let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out to the Almighty God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we uh, pray, God, now as we come to your word, and as Carol prayed this morning, mentioned, uh, for a breakthrough and we know that so many of us we are needing of a breakthrough and we know that your word can break through walls and so we pray god that this morning you would speak to us as only you can as jonah preached who was a poor prophet and the whole city came to be revitalized we pray that you're preaching a word in the name of jesus would revitalize your ministry your church your community we pray this in jesus name amen well, if you just joined us, we're right in the middle of a series of sermons. We're going through this little book of Jonah. And Jonah is a, a great book because so many people can relate to it. Because Jonah is about a man who is struggling on a journey with God. And if we're honest, so many of us, are, are, we struggle through this uh, life of faith. Uh, many, people that, uh, many people think that uh, the Christian life is this... It's supposed to be like this amazing color run. I don't know if you've ever heard of the color run. The color run is a um, it's like very short race. The tagline for the color run is the happiest 5,000 meters on the planet. And the color run is basically a very short race where all throughout the race there are smiling people who throw paint or chalk at you. And you're covered in this chalk or paint. You take a million selfies. You post it on your Instagram. Everyone's smiling. Nobody's breaking a sweat at this thing. It's just for fun. It's just an encouragement. Some people think that the Christian life is supposed to be like a color run. You know, you come to faith and everything's amazing. God blesses you. He takes away everything that is bad in your life. All the red lights turn green. You're just living your best life. That's how it is. Some people think the Christian life is like that. But if you look at the Bible, most often the Christian life is called one of these three things. A battle, a desert, or a wilderness. Those are the most common metaphors for the Christian life in the, in the Bible. The Bible says that the journey of the Christian life is not like a color run. It's like a thousand mile journey where all God gives you is a flashlight, uh, incomplete map, and some snacks. 
And all throughout this journey, we are often backtracking. We're getting lost. We're going in the wrong direction. We're getting injured. We're getting hurt. But God says on this journey, hey, I'm with you. You know, I'm, the, I'm your almighty king. I'm going to guide you. You might not know what's going to happen next year, even next month, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to provide for you. Uh, Jonah's life is this life that most typifies the Christian life, which is full of setbacks. We're often running from God. We're often hurt. We're often discouraged. But all along this journey, God promises to be with us. And one of the key ideas of the Christian life and the journey is this idea of confession or repentance. We're going to talk about this theme. I'm going to use the word repentance and confession interchangeably. They mean roughly the same things. But confession is a key theme in the Christian life because so often we're running in the wrong way and going in the wrong direction, just like Jonah is. And confession is a way to get back on track. Confession is the way to get back to the heart of God and the path of God. So it's a very critical piece in this journey. Uh, in our passage today in verse 8 to 10, the Hebrew word for repent occurs four separate times. Four separate times. It's a key. It's a key in this passage. It's one of the main themes of the book of Jonah. And so today, is, we're going to look about look at this idea of confession. I want to look at three ideas that confession is about. We're going to look at pictures of confession. What is confession? What are some pictures of it? Secondly, some problems with confession. Sometimes we have false confessions. The last thing we're going to look at is gospel confession, how the gospel brings us to a true sense. It puts in a proper place what confession is. We're going to start with these pictures that God gives us. At the beginning of Jonah's story, if you just joined us, it begins in chapter 1. God gives Jonah the prophet a mission. He gives him a mission. He tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, it's the enemy. Go to this prophet. Uh, he calls Jonah as a prophet to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. And Jonah, because he hates that city, he knows it's full of corruption, he decides not to go. So he rebels against God's word, against God himself, takes the first ship away, as far away as possible. The other side of what he conceives as the the world. But uh, God sends a storm. Uh, He disrupts Jonah's plans. He's miraculously saved as he goes into the sea by a giant fish which people speculate is a whale. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah comes to his senses. In some sense, he uh, changes. He realizes his error. So as chapter 3 begins, God again repeats. It's the same exact words. This command to Jonah. In verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. It's the same exact message and the idea is jonah gets a new beginning gets a new start god is a god of second chances and so what does jonah do with the second chance it says instead of running away from god in the next verse it says jonah arose and now what he does he do he he goes to nineveh according to the word of the lord and here's the first picture of repentance of what repentance is about repentance uh, the first definition of repentance, first picture of it is turning away and now turning in obedience to God. Repentance is a 180 degree turn from sin, from rebellion toward God. 
toward the path of God. Sometimes we can catch ourselves confessing the same sin again and again and again. Have you ever done that? You ask God for forgiveness, do it uh, again and again and again. It's a cycle. And you have to ask yourself, is that a very, is that a genuine confession? Or are are you saying to God, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I apologize, but that repentance is hollow. Uh, genuine repentance means a turn. It means a change in action. It means running, going from running from God to running toward the heart of God. But the second picture of repentance is this, and it's actually demonstrated by the Ninevites themselves. Uh, Jonah rose into Nineveh in verse 3. It's called a three-day's journey. And that's an idiom which meant that Nineveh was a massive city. He had to spend three days going throughout the whole city for three, three straight days in order to reach it to preach this message. And what is that message? It's this, it's this one succinct message. He says this message, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a simple, it's a heavy message. Historians say that at this time when Jonah was about set, ready, set to preach, the city of Nineveh would have been rocked by all kinds of natural disasters threats of war there might have been an earthquake that there were there was a violence there were rioting in the city so the city of Nineveh was already on edge they're already on edge from all of these natural disasters this social political turmoil and here comes this prophet now from another country saying that in just 40 days the whole city is going to be turned upside down and when the people of Nineveh hear this word they really respond they're already on edge and when they hear jonah speaking that message they really respond to that it says that they believe god it said that they called a fast and put on sackcloth and in ancient times you put on sackcloth you put ashes on your head as a a, as a metaphorical way to say i've been deeply humbled by god I'm so broken up uh, by my sin that I am of the earth. I'm broken. I'm humbled to the point of coming down to the ground. The Ninevites, as we said before, were part of a brutal culture of killing. They were known for their violence. They were known to be a brutal people. And now here, they they, they woke up to their brutality they woke up to their sin of destruction and they began to grieve over it. They began to mourn. True repentance is not just changing your actions, but include a broken spirit. Includes a broken spirit. We understand the magnitude of our actions and how our actions have grieved and hurt the people that, we, that love us the most. You know, I do a lot of marriage counseling. Sometimes I run into... Uh, Sometimes husbands, sometimes wives, who in midst of a conflict, they have a tendency to confess their sin too quickly. Too quickly. You might think, well, why is that a bad thing? When someone admits that, you know, that they're the problem, they made a mistake, they confess it too quickly. And part of the problem is when you have too quick of a confession is it's one way to not confess at all. You know, when you apologize too fast for something you did, a lot of times you want to just get it over with. Like, let me quickly just apologize for this, and let's just move on so I'm not, I don't got to deal with it. You know, true confession takes time. 
And you are entering into the world of the, of the sin that you confessed. And you're grieving over it. You're realizing the destruction and the pain that you caused the other person. Uh, true confession involves genuine sorrow and remorse. Do you understand what you've done? You've entered into their world. You experienced the pain and the sorrow. Genuine confession has to do with our actions, but also our heart. Here's the final picture of confession that the uh, chapter 3 of Nineveh in Nineveh gives us. That genuine confession also is corporate and public. It's corporate and public. We see this as Jonah begins to preach this message of confession and repentance. That it catches like wildfire. You know, Jonah was supposed to spend three days, three separate days preaching this word. And he only needs one. Why is that? It's because when people first hear about what Jonah is saying, and he calls them to repentance, to confession, they all rapidly start confessing their sins. Not just to, not just to God, but to each other. This message starts spreading. It spreads like wildfire. People repeat the very words of Jonah to their neighbor, to their friends. Jonah doesn't even have to go three days journey. He only needs one. The people in Nineveh do it for him. They're all speaking. They're all confessing, not just to God, but to each other. The message is starting to spread all throughout the city. In fact, it reaches the king of Nineveh. And you would think that the people might repent. The king's not going to repent. But in fact, the very opposite is true. It says the king of Nineveh, when he hears what is happening, he gets down from his royal throne, takes off his royal garments, and he himself puts on a sackcloth, puts ashes on his head. The greatest king has become the lowest servant. And he issues a decree. He says to everyone in Nineveh, not just that you have to fast, abstain from food, but food and water. It's the most extreme form of fasting. You cannot do that for very long without dying. He says not only the people, but even the animals. I mean, he's taken to another level, this level of confession. He's issuing a decree to the whole city. And he's saying that this confession is to be corporate and public. You know, throughout our history, we've seen uh, this happen, where kings or presidents have issued decrees. In fact, in our history, in 1798, President John Adams, he declared a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. He issued a decree, and he says that this is going to be a national day of fasting, and not only that, humiliation. We're, we're supposed to humble ourselves and prayer. Uh, one idea, we th- tend to think of confession as something very private, that we just, me and God. And we do have a private time of confession where we just uh, quietly, we don't want to tell anyone else about our, our, our sins. We privately confess our sins to God. But in the Bible, in addition to that, confession is also public and it's also corporate. It's something that we do together and with each other. One idea of corporate confession is that even though I might not have sinned, maybe the individual people of Nineveh had not sinned in terms of being violent or oppressive, corporate confession is the idea that I am complicit in it based on my silence. I have not spoken out against it. And I've benefited from the system of corruption and violence. And that's why corporate confession in many ways is needed today as well. It's not just corporate, but it's also public. 
People are confessing their sins to each other. That's why James says this in James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James says, confess your sins to God, but also to one another. Not just privately, but in many sense publicly. Speak and voice that to your friend, to your brother. My wife was telling me that one of the most powerful times in her Christian life was when she was at a youth camp, and there were people who came up and started publicly confessing their sins to the whole group. And she says it was powerful for her because as they were confessing their sins, she was thinking to herself, oh, I'm not, you too? (laughs) You're struggling with that as well? And she felt like, I'm not alone in this. Now there's someone else who is struggling with me. I'm not alone. I love it when uh, some people feel like they have to confess their sins to their pastor. So uh, some people confess their sins to me. And I love to say to me, people who are brave enough to confess their sins to me, I love to say things like, me too. And that takes them all aback because they're like, you're a pastor. How, How can you say you sin that sin too? And I realize that every single sin in the world, the seed of that is in my heart. I might not have committed that same sin exactly the same way, but I realized all of the, the lust and the anger and the greed and the pride, that's in me. I'm part of that. So I can always say, if you confess your sin to me, me too. I, I struggle with that so much. And let's do this together. You know, let's, let's, let's walk with God together. And I love to say to them, you know, you are forgiven in Christ. You don't have to keep that weight on you. You can take that weight off. And let's get connected to a community in which we can confess our sins to each other. When you confess your sins to a close brother or sister, you are uh, doing something powerful. You're making your confession real. It's so easy to fake confession privately with God. But you know, when you confess your sins to another person, man, that makes it real. It's real. You're asking for accountability, like, I need help with this. I really want to change. And you are giving people an opportunity to love you. Give people an opportunity to love you and walk beside you. Confession is a powerful way to be healed. You know, it's interesting because the message of Jonah seems 100% negative. He says, this is his only message, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Now, it seems like that message is totally negative. But you know, the word overthrown in the Hebrew is actually ambiguous. That word overthrown means simply to be turned upside down. But think about it. If you're already upside down, to be overturned is actually a positive thing. You know, if you're in an accident, a major accident, and your car flipped over and the roof was on the ground, to be overturned means healing. It means restoration. Jonah didn't realize that, that the message to the Ninevites could have been a positive thing. He was saying to the city, in 40 days, if you respond to this message, your life's going to be turned upside down, but you're going to be restored because of that. You're going to be made right with God. You know, confessing your sins can be a scary thing. It's a tumultuous thing because you're exposing all your secret stuff, your dirt, your laundry publicly. But in the sunshine, in the light, you're going to be healed. 
when you bring all your stuff to God and when you confess it to another person, man, in that light you're going to feel free. That's the way to healing. It's the way God's going to restore you. Confession is a beautiful thing that brings us back into the presence of God and into real community where we can be known, the true us. But here's the second thing about confession, and this is the hard thing. It's so so easy to get it wrong. It's so easy for it to go wrong. One of the things many scholars and theologians have pointed out about their the confession that the Ninevites had, the repentance, was that it was faulty. It wasn't complete. One of the ways we know that is that it was motivated out of fear. Listen to what the king says, the king of Nineveh in verse 9. He says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is the motivation for the Ninevites to change? And the answer is what the king says, they didn't want to die. Now, to be fair to the Ninevites, that was the only message they were given. That uh, that they would be overthrown, overturned. We talked talk about the ambiguity of that, but they're still struggling with what that means. And they responded to that message out of a fear. They didn't want to get crushed. They didn't want to die. But fear is a poor motivation, ultimately, to come to God. It's always Fear is meant to be a short-term response that God gave to us so that we can respond quickly to a crisis. It could be a wild animal. We can be in danger. And fear is a gift that keeps us moving. That It's an adrenaline burst. But it's a poor, long-term motivator to stay with God. But all the time in the Christian church, fear is used as a way to get to God. A lot of youth youth come to God at youth group retreats because they fear they don't want to go to hell. Is that how you came to faith? That you came to faith because, man, I, I don't want to burn in hell. Like the youth pastor gives you this crazy description of hell, fire, and brimstone. You're like, I don't want to go there. And have you ever prayed the sinner's prayer like repeated times because you want to escape hell? But you know, guess what? That's a poor motivator to come to God because when the fear diminishes... So many of the youth who started like that, they leave the church. It's not a great way to stay connected to God. Imagine if you were engaged to someone and you asked them why, you wanted to, why they wanted to marry you. You're expecting a sweet answer. Imagine your fiancé said, well, just to be honest, I, I really was afraid that I was going to die alone. <laughs> and and uh, just to be honest, that fear just drove me to be committed to you. <laughs> you know? Imagine if you given that kind of response. You'd be like, hey, I, I think we should rethink this whole thing. You know? Because fear is not a great motivator to stay in a relationship. What, what does that relationship need? Not fear, but what? Love. You know, in order to stay on track with God, we don't need just fear. We need something more positive. We need love. Repentance ultimately cannot be solely motivated by a fear of God's punishment. Why is that? It's, an, again, a poor long-term motivator. In fact, we know, historians tell us, it's actually in the Bible, that the Ninevites, when the threat of destruction diminished, we know in the later prophets that the Ninevites, eventually, eventually the Ninevites, returned back to their violent, hostile ways. They would eventually conquer Israel. They'd eventually deport 
most of their residents, uh, as soon as the threat of punishment, of destruction ended, so did their turning to God. You know, fear is a terrible long-term motivator to be in relationship with God. But here's the second thing. The second problem with their confession is ultimately that their confession was incomplete. And that's the problem that many of us have with our confession. I talked about different aspects of what repentance looks like in terms of changing our actions. It's, heart, it's, it, it's a heartfelt uh, desire of remorse. It's corporate. It's public. But how many of us really truly can do that? Uh, ultimately, we struggle with this idea that our confession is always incomplete. We can never truly and fully repent because we're always, in once it's returning back to the same things that we did. It's the same cycle. Uh, we see this today, this idea of how confessions can fall short. And many people, especially celebrities, uh, actors, who are called out for their past behavior. Uh, a tweet that they did years ago, unearthed. And a lot of times these prominent people give apologies. Sometimes these apologies are not accepted they're not complete. They don't feel genuine. They feel like they're just being, they got caught and now they're apologizing as a response to being caught. Uh, years ago, there was an a actor comedian who was caught on camera on a stage saying all kinds of racist things. Used the N-word. Said all kinds of racist, hostile things. Later on, he went on a talk show and he publicly apologized. He says, I'm truly sorry but it, then he made light of the situation by telling a lot more jokes. And people did not like that apology. Uh, in fact, that ended his career. And he gave an interview recently in which he says he's still haunted to this day about that incident. He has this weight on his shoulder that he cannot remove. How much confession is enough? You know, how much, how, how much of our apologies are really genuine and heartfelt? Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, struggled with this same thing. He was a, a monk who struggled with impure thoughts and his pride. And he would confess these sins again and again. And in his journal, this is what he says. I often repeated my confession and zealously performed my required penance. And yet my conscience would never give me assurance. But I was always doubting and said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Luther realized that no matter how much he confessed his sins, he realized his confessions, he had to confess his confessions. He realized he repented, but he was like, God, I repent of my repentance. My, re- my confession and my repentance, they're never good enough. I can't apologize enough. I can't fully and truly turn away from these things I'm confessing. And he felt like he was in a trap feel like he can never perfectly repent until he found a breakthrough what was his breakthrough luther realized the breakthrough came when he realized that he did not actually need to confess every sin in order to be forgiven he was not made right based on the quality of his repentance but by faith in a perfect sacrifice that was made for him in christ Luther realized that it wasn't about the quality of his repentance, but it was by faith looking to one, this generous God, who 
who forgives us even though our confessions need to be confessed. This brings us to our last point, this idea of gospel repentance. And ultimately, the, what the message of Jonah is about is not that we need to repent in a specific and deep and perfect way, but that even our failed and imperfect repentance can bring about a massive amount of God's grace into our lives. A theme, I said that confession is one theme in the book of Jonah, but really the ultimate theme in the book of Jonah is this theme of God's grace and the greatness of his mercies. After uh, the city of Nineveh confesses in verse 10, we read, read this summary. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God turns away this disaster, and we said that this confession was incomplete. It was based on fear. Yet even though this confession was not perfect or complete, God brought about this massive change in verse 10. He relented. He relented from the disaster that he had planned from them. And the idea is that God's grace is bigger than our shallow and incomplete confession. That his mercies are always bigger than any one of our sins. Remember that the city of Nineveh was a terrorist state. That's what we talked about. It was a brutal culture. And God, one of the reasons he sent you, he wanted to end all of the violence, oppression, and brutality. He wanted to change all of that. Uh, But when they turn away from them, God spares the city of Nineveh. And that shows us a picture of God's heart. That God's judgment was in one sense to end that brutality and violence. But God's judgment was suspended when they turn away and they turn to God in faith. And that's always the heart of God. Listen to what 1 Timothy says in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy, it says, this is God's heart. And this is what God is telling Jonah. God, Jonah, my heart is big and large. I, mean, I love the city of Nineveh. I, des- I love the people and the inhabitants there. I want them all to turn away and turn toward me. God's grace is massive. It's beautiful. It's like an ocean. When you, st- when you understand God's heart of grace and compassion, that is actually the key to genuine repentance. I love Romans 2 verse 4. And this is the key to confession. In it, it says, Or do you presume, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And Paul says, ultimately, the thing that leads us to repentance is not a fear, fear of God's judgment, but it's the kindness of God, his patience with us, his love for us. And that leads us to repentance. We see Jesus on the cross dying for all of our sins unconditionally. And we're moved by that. You know, it's interesting, verse 7, this chapter, the king of Nineveh himself, it's supposed to be this jarring idea that this king humbles himself, puts on sackcloth, he takes off his robe, puts on sackcloth, it goes to the ground, humbles himself, not to the point of death. What is the gospel message? The gospel message is that there is a true king, the king of kings, in fact. 
And what does he do? He humbles himself, though he is without sin. He humbles himself, strips his robe off to the point of death. Hanging on the cross. Why? To pay our debt and our sin. He, pays, he does that all for us in our place so that we would be set free. And when you see the kindness of our king, when you see our king on that cross, God's kindness leads you to repentance. You know, I've been mentioning this passage before in Matthew 12, and we're going to close with it. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus talks about him being uh, the greater than Jonah. But let's look at this last verse in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 40 to 41. It says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus brings in this idea of the greater to the lesser. And he talks about this whole idea of Nineveh. And he says that Jonah was a terrible prophet. He was the most reluctant prophet who ever lived. He, didn't, he, was, he was a preacher who did not want to go. And he had maybe the worst message of any prophet. His message was simply, in 40 days, God's going to overturn your city. That's all. That was his whole message. It's just one phrase, this one reluctant messenger, and what happened? The whole city of Nineveh repented. They returned to God. What does Jesus say? He says, you know what? I'm the greater than Jonah. I'm not a reluctant prophet. I am a willing servant, and I go out of love. And I come to you, and I preach not just judgment, but grace. I'm the king who laid it all for you. I'll give up my life for you. And Jesus says, man, if the people of Nineveh repented on a message of judgment, what will you do with the message of grace? You know, if the people of Nineveh had this one phrase preached to them by this unwilling prophet, how much will you repent if you have a greater than Jonah? who is a king who has stripped himself of his royal robe, who has come down to this earth willingly, who's put all of his sins upon you to give you life, to give you forgiveness. You know, as we close this uh, morning, I want to tell you that sin is a terrible master. You might be like Jonah. You're just kind of off alone. You've walked away from God, but you discover that sin is a terrible master. It doesn't love you. It will only use you. And when you're running away from God and running away from community, it can be super lonely. Because not only do you not have God and his forgiveness, but also nobody knows you. You have these secret things in your life that are hidden. And it can be very depressing and demeaning. And if you're feeling like Jonah this morning in the early chapters, God invites you back home. He says to you this morning, come back to me. I'm here to forgive you to heal you come back into community there are people who are just like you come back into being known and loved and this morning would you come back into his kingdom would your life be turned upside down and would you realize when your life is turned upside down it's overthrown 
You're actually the right side up. And being turned over is a way to be healed. It's a way to be forgiven. It's a way to take all the weight off of you. It's a way of being known. It's a way of being loved. Would you come back to the greater than Jonah? Would you find your rest and your peace in him? Please join me in prayer. Father, I pray for all of us who spent this week running from you. And we realize that it's worn us out. We feel super lonely. We feel a weight on us. And we do feel like nobody really knows us. That we are living a secret life. Filled with fear. Filled with grief. Filled with isolation. And Father, I pray that you would welcome us back into your presence where we can hear the music of the gospel, the sound of celebration, the community that can embrace us. So I pray that City Light would be a place of genuine confession of community. I pray that this would be a place that we can be known and loved. I pray that it would not be guilt, but grace. I pray that in a city filled with anonymous people, we'd have family. Pray that, Lord, that we would stop running from you and start running to you. Pray that you would change us, flip us inside out. And help us to know that when we're buried down in the ground, there is a resurrection coming. Pray that we would be people of hope. Pray that we would be people of peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.